On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper ones after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved, you were saved best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's the word of today. Well, welcome everyone. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really great to have everybody here. And a warm welcome to those who are visiting with us for the first time. It's really great to have you. If you didn't grab a welcome pack on the way in, then please be sure to let yourselves be known to us so that we can give you one on the way out. Just some information about the church. and It offers ways that we might be able to share with you and serve you and gives you opportunity to be a part of the community here. For those who are regulars, warm welcome to you as well. It's really good to have you here. In your notices there is a yellow slip um, if you have any prayer needs or things like that and you would like to share them with the church that the community together might pray with you and for you then please uh, write your name on there and the information that you want to communicate if you want to be baptized if you want more information about Jesus if you want to fill that in and there's boxes on each of the exits you can just pop them in there and we'll be able to get back to you and again work out how we as a community can serve each other. The second announcement is the anniversary service next Sunday at 9.30. If you come at half past 10, you'll have missed most of the music and most of the sermon. Um, so if you come about 9.15 early, then you have an opportunity to talk with people, find a good spot to sit. It's going to be at the same time as the Cantonese service, which will be down in the activity centre, and the Mandarin service, which will be over in the conference room. So um, come to those. If you come in the evening, it'll be the same service in the evening. So you, know, you can either come twice and be able to um, be blessed twice, or you can choose which of those that you want to come to. The third announcement that we have, I think there's another slide, is a Bible in ethics. You had a little leaflet in your bulletin today. Saturday fortnight, so on the 31st of August at 7 p.m., we're going to be doing a, a seminar, a time discussing the issue of asylum seekers, refugees, foreigners, aliens. What does the Bible have to say about this topic? What are the principles that we as Christian folk, God's people, are to use when thinking about this issue? It's very topical. And then to say, well, how does that relate to our role and responsibility as individuals, as Christians? How about ourselves as a community? And how do we respond then as citizens in this nation as to how do we want to respond in, in God's 
according to God's principles. So um, please put the time aside if you're interested in coming and talking about that. That'll be at 7 o'clock here in the main auditorium Saturday in a week or so. Um, any other announcements up there? No? The only other one I have is just to let you know as a congregation that uh, Selwyn Dickfoss has, has resigned as an elder and to um, let you know that and to ask you to pray for him and continue to pray for him in his ministry. Pastor Team wants to give our thanks for the service that he's done and just ask that he will continue to be used in, in God's service in this place. So as you are praying, pray for him, pray for his continued ministry. Pray for the events that are upcoming. Let's just quickly pray and ask God's blessing upon these things. Father, we do pray for the anniversary service coming up next week. We pray that as Daryl prepares, even though he's away this week, that you will give him time to be able to put into what, how he might encourage us and challenge us as a church um, in this celebration of, of our anniversary, our birthday. Father, we also pray for um, the seminar coming up in a couple of weeks. We ask that as we look through this ethical issue, that for those who come, it might be an opportunity to see how we as a church, how we as Christians might respond appropriately to the, the, the whole issue and be able to evaluate what is going on in terms of us as a nation, us as a community, us as a church, and us as individuals, so that we might live in accord with your values and your principles. Father, we, we pray for Selwyn. We thank you for the service that he has given in the capacity as elder. And as he continues to worship in the church, we ask that you might um, continue to bless him and his impact amongst us, that he might be used for your glory. We ask that you might help us to encourage him and bless him as well. But as we come now and look at your word, we ask that you teach us, guide us, strengthen us, encourage us, and that by your spirit we might learn more about Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. At the end of the reading last week in John's Gospel, if you remember, Jesus had called the disciples to himself, letting them into this relationship with him, and they had believed in him. And he said, you will see even greater than this. <clears throat> you will see heavens open, the, the open heavens, and on the Son of Man, on Jesus, the angels ascending and descending. And at the, last of la at the end of last week, we talked about the fact that this was a, a comment back to the passage in uh, Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob had had a dream with his head on a rock and he saw the heavens open and the angels ascending and descending. And Jesus said, you will see this. You will recognize that he, Jesus, was the way to know God, that he was the one in whom was going to show God to them and that they would come to believe in this as they continued to walk with him, greater things. And then chapter 2 of John's Gospel says... On the third day, a wedding took place. And then in verse 11, it says, this is the first of the signs. Now, the word sign here is a little bit different than the word miracle. It's a different word that's used in the Greek. The word miracle is kind of like this wonder working. The signs, and particularly in John's Gospel, signs is not only a story about what happens, but John says it's also kind of like an active, an active parable. It's something that is going to teach us something about Jesus, teach us something about who he is. It's going to point 
to some aspect of Christ, some aspect of his ministry, which is to bless us as individuals and to bless us as a community. Not just to say, wow, Jesus is great. He can make red wine out of water. Cool. But it tells us something more about his purpose. And in relation to what came at the end of chapter 1, it is supposed to bring into us the same sort of reaction that was brought into Jacob when he saw this happening. If you remember, we read from Genesis chapter 28 last week that after, after, Jesus had, uh, after Jacob had had this dream, this was his comment. He said, when Jacob woke from his sleep, Genesis 28 verse 16, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And Jesus promised that his disciples would have this same attitude as they saw and as they walked and as they ministered with him. And three days later, we have this first of the signs. And at the very end, it says, and his disciples believed in him. They put their trust in him. They put their faith in him. In other words, it is supposed to begin pointing them to this attitude that Jacob had but instead of this place, this attitude would be what they had about Jesus. So their response would be, having heard this story, having seen this story, surely the Lord is in this person and I was not aware of it. How awesome is Jesus? He is none other than the house, the dwelling place of God. He is the gate of heaven. This is to be the response as they look at, as they evaluate this sign. So as we go through and as we have a look at this passage, yes, we take away from it the miracle of what Jesus does in transforming water into wine. But we also have to look further. What does this teach us about Jesus and how he as God responds to us? And what it teaches that we might glorify him. So let's go through it. But just an aside again, because I keep going on these aside. There's just so much in here. Guys, read it and read it and read it throughout the week. Meditate and mull upon it. All of the, the phrases that come out here are fairly common themes throughout John. So, for example, as you're reading through this, think of it as, as a parable as well as a story. So, and the use of his words. So, for example, the on the third day says very soon afterwards he begins to show this. But if you remember reading down in verse um, 4, he says, My hour has not yet come. Now in John's gospel, my hour refers to the work that Jesus done on the cross. And John, right from the very beginning, and Jesus in these signs, right from the beginning, begins to point to the work that he does on the cross. And we're supposed to read in this as his community, as people who know that story, as we see these things, that on the third day his glory is revealed, is already being pushed into the people's minds, that they can begin already to have that sort of idea. If you remember back in chapter 1, he talked to, John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit. And then in John chapter 3, we're going to get the story of Nicodemus, who says you've been born of water, but you're going to be born of the Spirit. And then here you have this transformation from water into wine and John is actually expecting us to pick up all these parables as, as we go through this story to be able to begin to see the transformation from that which is old to that which is new and to pick up elements of this to help us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done 
So with that other aside, let's move on. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. For your interest, weddings usually happen on Wednesdays, they tell us. Why you have a wedding on a Wednesday, I don't know. They also say that the party went for about a week. So you had a wedding and it went for a week. Now, in our mind, we kind of think Roman orgy when you think a whole week of a party because we think you go to a restaurant and just eat and drink and eat and drink for a week. That's a very Western framework. It's, it's a very city framework. And if you read the commentaries, that's what they talk about. And I think you've never lived in the country and you've never lived in the rural areas. No farmer that I know can leave his property for a week just to party. So basically what happened was they did have a week of celebration and people would, throughout that period of time, even though there was this banquet where everybody came, people would then continue to celebrate throughout the week. But this was, it seems like, most likely the Wednesday, which just for your interest, as you're reading chapter 1, go back and look at when the Sabbath was and what happened on the Sabbath and see if you can learn anything from that from chapter 1 because that's really kind of interesting as well. And beside the way... Oh, no, let's go there. So if you keep going back in Genesis, in, in John chapter 1, this was, it seems most likely, when um, Andrew and whoever the other disciple were spent time with Jesus on the Sabbath. And he was showing them himself. And you can actually bring this into our understanding of Sabbath. What are the sorts of things that we do in that time when we're taking a rest? And most likely, John, that's the time when he says, there's Jesus, you need to look at Jesus, you need to relate to Jesus. This is when the disciples came and spent time with Jesus, that, that they might be encouraged, they might come to believe in him. Our use of Sabbath is not just to go to Garbo and have a really nice lunch and talk about everything that's happening in a week. It's not just to go and have a picnic in the park. It's to be spent in communicating with each other, encouraging one another in our face so that we can focus on Jesus. That's an aside. You can go and do that yourself. Coming back here. A wedding took place in Canaan and Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. It tells us his mother was there because his mother was there. Nothing really in there. Um, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to wedding. The fact that his mum was there and Jesus was there. Cana is fairly close to Nazareth. Either they were a part of the extended family or they were friends. This is why they were there. And, you know, it kind of helps to add some wait to why his mum would be interested in coming and letting us know that they'd run out of wine. Jesus and his disciples had been invited to wedding, either because they all kind of knew each other, or also in those cultures, if you were a teacher or a leader of a group of people, when you were invited, your followers were invited. Like if the parents were invited, the kids all came along as well. Which is another reason some commentators say his mum rocks up and says they've run out of wine. Some people suggest she's coming and saying, you brought all these new disciples. They don't have enough. It's your fault. Freeloader. <laughs> they, they, they talk about all sorts of reasons, but we don't have any real reasons from the text. But all we know is that Jesus' mum comes and tells Jesus of the need that is in these people's lives. She obviously wants him to do something about it. She is, if you like, she's bringing the need and she's tugging on his heartstrings and she says, this should make you do something. I don't know what she wanted him to do, but mums seem to point to kids and say, you've got to do something. Normally we can work it out. He knew what he was supposed to do, something. And he turns to her and it seems rude. 
he says, woman. I would never call my mum woman. <laughs> I get a smack. But apparently it's not that rude. Although there is some history from back there that it can be like, a, you know, mom. But I don't think so. Anyways, so the point. Why do you involve me? It's an idiom, which kind of means, what's this got to do with me? What have you and I got to do together about this thing? If you like, in the context of pulling his heart, trying to get him to do something, why are you bringing this to me? Why are you trying to, 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 to be the one that initiates my action here? It seems because his next statement is, my hour has not yet come, that what he's really saying to her is, Mum, <laughs> the, the initiative for working here isn't because you pull on my heartstrings. The initiative here is that I work in accordance with my father's will. If I do anything in this situation, no, it's because I'm doing what God wants. Now, what do we learn from that just briefly off to the side? We often think that as God responds in our life, he does it because we bring this huge need to him and he has to respond because we kind of tug on his heart. What Jesus says, no, the action of God is at God's initiative. God is the one who comes into the situation and enacts something in our lives. He's the one that brings grace. Jesus is aware of the life situation which these people are in. Yes, he does want the information, but he wants it made clear that his action is because God is taking the initiative in this situation. Why does he say woman? Again, I think it's this, this opportunity to do this little bit of distancing, to say, I'm responding here not as your son, I'm responding here because God wills an action in this, in this life. We, we, we read this in, in the next chapter, John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. We read it throughout the whole of John's gospel that it is God's initiative to reach out and to save the lost. He doesn't have to. They don't necessarily deserve it. They don't deserve it at all. He does it out of the overflow of his love, his compassion, his grace. It's a work of God in our lives. I remember the first time I used to work as a principal of a school and one of my teachers was my mum. I remember one staff meeting, she was kind of chatting away on the side and I was getting it going and I turned and said, Robin, could you see the look on her face? Me calling my mum by her first name. It was kind of that thing. You're now a teacher here and I'm the principal. I'm not your son. It's time to get this meeting started. And she, that's what it was like. And I think Jesus is kind of just that little bit of distancing to say, my action here is because it's God's initiative in this whole process of meeting the needs of these people. Yes, it's, it's great to know the need and to understand the shame that would be on the family if they couldn't provide a good party. But understand that the initiative of working in this setting is of God. His mum, I think, takes it reasonably well. She says, um, do, whatever, is this still working? do whatever he tells you. Um, I think she's taking a step back and saying, yes, it's, it's his initiative, it's his purpose. Whatever he tells you to do, do. She kind of almost says, whatever it is that you do, I'll accept. But you do what he says, knowing that God is still going to want to take an action, but it's at his initiative. Nearby stood six water stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Everyone knows how much 20 to 30 gallons is? You've seen a 44-gallon drum, right? That's those drums which are 
about that round. Raise your hand, it's me. No. About that round. And about that high, 44 going up, about half the size of that. So think about it, cut in half. So it's a big stone thing. It was stone because for the Jews, they weren't allowed to do ceremonial washing in pottery. So you couldn't make a pottery thing. Apparently, the uncleanness of washing your hands in the pottery would make everything unclean, whereas if it was stone, it wouldn't. I mean, I don't get that. But that was the, the rule. So there were six of them. Now, no, this is a rural area. It's most likely that the water that's been brought here, because these are drier places, is not what they would use to drink. This is what they used to purify themselves, to wash their hands. Um, in some of the places when I used to go in conferences in Ethiopia, there was separate water that was a bit brackish, a bit browner. That's what I washed my hands in. That's not what I drank. The drinking water was clean and kept separate and often diluted in wine just to kill any of the bugs that were left over. So the water that Jesus points to is used for that washing of hands to make people ceremonially clean. And this is, again, one of those sign things, one of those parable-type things. Jesus takes this symbol of purity according to the law, where you try and, by the things that you do, achieve rightness that you can then come in and eat, that you can come in and relate with people clean. And he takes that and he says, fill them with water. And they did. They filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. How much is this? Between, if you think about it, 20 to 30. So between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. I would ask you how much wine you guys think you need at a party, but you're Baptist, so you won't know. Um, this is more than enough. This is more than enough for the sort of... Um, parties that they would have, even if they had everybody drinking on the one night, they would usually dilute the wine up to one to ten times. So whether this was already diluted or not, either way, there's an enormous amount of wine that Jesus said, just by his very saying, dip it in. And people try all sorts of ways of how this turned into wine or not. And the answer is, no idea. But as they dipped it out, the servants went and they gave it to the master of the banquet, and he didn't realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it out knew. He called the bridegroom aside. He called it and he says, this is really good Australian wine. <laughs> Most people serve New Zealand wine. <laughs> Any New Zealanders here? Try some good Australian stuff. Um, no, he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests... Oh, that's bad. Have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. Now, if you take that whole picture, what Jesus has done is he's taken the embarrassment and the shame of the circumstance where they were, and he's turned it into this time for rejoicing. He's given them the very best. He's met them in their need at his initiative, and he's brought them into this place of abundance with wonderful stuff with wonderful he's met their need in a way which is so bountiful and overflowing that they'll be celebrating well past a week but then you've got that 
other aspect, that deeper aspect, where he's, he's changed that which was them trying to achieve in the ceremonial washing, to try and earn something so they could be holy. And he's transformed it into this image of joy and celebration. And the people who knew were the servants, and we have no idea about their response, and the disciples. This was the first of the signs, the first of the lived parables that he did. Not the first miracle, because he knew in some divine way who Peter was and what he would be called. He knew where Nathaniel had been. And in the next chapter, there are miracles that are done, but they're not called signs. And later on, there's something that says, this is the second sign. So this was a very lived parable before them. And he revealed his glory. On the third day, he came and he showed them something about himself that they would begin to understand this is the person who is the gate for heaven. This is the one who is the house of God. This is the one who, through whom I can actually relate and know God. And they learn something about his ministry here. They learn that he is going to, if you like, replace, maybe that, transform that law, seeking by the law to achieve some sort of relationship with God, but was always going to be deficient because we could never do it. Transform that into a relationship through him where we have this great abundance of joy because of his grace, something that totally overflows. And their response is that they believed in him. They went deeper in their faith with him. They grew in him. That's the story. What do we learn from it? I listened to about five or six sermons online through the week on this. Most of them said, you learn from this, it's okay to drink alcohol. <laughs> Except for the one guy who was trying to express that he actually created grape juice because he couldn't ferment it in that amount of time. It's got nothing to do with that. What, what do we learn from this? I think we learn a number of things. One is that by God's initiative, he comes and finds us in the circumstances that we're at. However, he knows that his action for us to bring us to himself, to relate with us, to show us his grace, to meet our needs, is because he desires to do so. God wants to work amongst us. He sees us in our misery and the depth of our pain and our sin and our loss, but he responds because it's his desire to do so. He wants to come and work amongst us. We learn that. We learn that when he comes to bless us, he meets our need, but he doesn't just meet it to the level of what anything else might meet our need for. But he meets it to that abundance, that oversupply that brings joy. We, we don't always understand that. And the bridegroom's going, where'd you get this stuff from? Go put it away, bring some other stuff out. You don't know what's going to be happening, but we do know that Jesus supplies an overabundance of life-giving grace towards us to bring us into this relationship with God. We learn more than that. 
we learn that that which was not able to save or to satisfy, the keeping of the law, the purification by doing things, has been transformed in Christ Jesus because he has dealt with that issue, the impurity of it all, if you like. He has dealt with our sin so that now when we relate to God, we don't relate in that state of having to seek to somehow please that he might somehow respond to us favorably. But we've now entered into this relationship where we respond to him as his child. This comes out later on in John. We respond to him because he has already saved us and he loves us and he's been gracious towards us and we respond in joy. And there are different sorts of people here. Some here maybe don't know Jesus yet. You've heard a lot about him. You've thought about him. You've heard the stories about Christ. You've talked to your friends about him. Maybe that's why you're in the service. This story is there to again remind you, to again bring Jesus up before you, to know that he knows the situation you're in. He actively takes an interest and responds to you. He wants to bring you into this relationship of abundant joy. He wants to deal with all those issues which you're struggling with, whatever they are. The sin, the loneliness, the depression, issues at work, issues in relationship, whatever that situation is. He wants to work in that situation and he can do so to bring abundance and grace and joy in the relationship that you have with him. He wants, as you see him and what he is like, as evidenced in this story, that you might respond to him and begin to believe in him. Begin on a journey of coming to know him that culminates when his time has come, which we read later on in John, is that time when he comes to the cross and is crucified and he rises from the dead that we can have new life. And as, as John talks about that new life that we have with the Father as we go into eternity with him, and that wedding banquet at the end of John, where we relate with God on that personal level for all eternity. Begin that journey. Come and have a look at God. We haven't got too many Gospels of John left down the back, but if you didn't get one last week, grab one this week. Or write on a piece of paper and we'll get one for next week. Just that you can read these signs and learn more about Christ Jesus. And you might have that relationship with him because you can't earn it on your own. And to those of us who are, who are disciples, who already know Jesus, what can we do? How, what do we learn from this? Besides the fact that Jesus still continues to meet us in our needs, he can still continues to have initiative in our life because he wants us to have that joy of knowing his grace. I find as I talk with Christians that they often still respond to others and respond to God as if they live in this ceremonial washing type situation. We think of ourselves and we relate to people as if by doing the right thing, thinking the right thing, behaving in the right way, that's what gives us value and worth. And that we can somehow please God to such an extent that he might love us if we live for him, if we do these things for him. The way that we think about ourselves, we think of ourselves as poor and as shameful and we feel guilty because we have not done. We see our self-worth depending on whether we were angry or not angry, whether we were greedy or not greedy, whether we were selfish or not selfish, 
whether we lusted or didn't lust. That's how we view ourselves and we think our self-worth is, is tied up in how we perform, how we act, how we relate to people. And Jesus says that's the whole way of living. Your self-worth isn't tied up in those things. Your self-worth is tied up in the fact that I, the God, with his initiative, reached down and saved you. He reached down and brought you into his family. He reached down and showed his grace to you and has provided you with abundance. He's forgiven you beyond anything you can possibly imagine. That's where your identity resides. And, and a lot of Christians are emotionally stunted because our self-worth is still tied up there. And that's, let me tell you, if this is where we live, we often live a lie before people. Because we're trying to present something that they might think good of us. We don't tell them when we're frustrated. We don't tell them when we're upset. We don't show them who we are because we don't want them to think badly of us. Instead of living in the sense that we are being transformed by the grace of Christ into his image by his good grace. And I am who I am in him, his child, because he saved me. And yes, I seek not to be selfish and I seek not to lie and I seek not to lust and I seek to relate to people well because I'm his child. My value is I'm his child, not the things that I've done. And for us as Christian people, I think we often live there, and that's why people looking on from the outside say, what a judgmental lot you are. Or what a bunch of do-gooders, or whatever else, because our identity is still tied up in living and washing our hands in the ceremonial jars. And Jesus has transformed that into this life of joy and service and gratitude and abundance. And that's how we're supposed to live, so that when they look at us as a Christian community, they are supposed to revel with us in the fact of God's great and abundant blessing to us, in saving us. And that's the type of people that God wants us to live and to be. So I encourage you, as people who are his disciples, to be transformed in your thinking by this sign. This is why John wrote it to the church, that we might glorify him in our lives. So often when we think about our lives, we think of ourselves. We're still selfish people. But our lives are be to the, his glory. This is who I am in him. And it should change the way we think and act and behave and believe. And the third thing, there are people here who have been Christians for a long time. The disciples believed in him, it says at the end of this sign. And yet at the previous chapter, they had already acknowledged you are the Messiah, the Son of God. In other words, they continued to grow. So I'd encourage you, no matter how many times you've read this story, no matter how many times you've read John, no matter how many times you've considered Christ... I won't tell you how old I am, but I've been a Christian now for... 36 years. If I stop there and say, I know, I believe, I stagnate. I slowly begin to lose momentum and die. And what again I think this teaches us right at the end is that our response to Jesus is to be one where our belief, our trust in Him, our reliance in Him grows. 
So I would encourage you throughout this day that we set aside for the worship of our God, spend some time contemplating Christ, contemplating what he's done, contemplating the abundant life that you have in him to be called his child, that you no longer have to live a life where you're seeking to do things to somehow earn his favor, but because of his great grace to you, he has reached out and grabbed you and brought you into his family. Consider that, mull over that, his divinity that you might glorify him and that your life might grow, that you might believe in him more. And I would encourage you all to do that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray for those who are still yet not convinced that they want to be disciples of Jesus. And I pray you might help them to, again, look at Jesus, all that he is, God himself come to dwell amongst us. All that he's done, miraculous, wonder-working, dealing with our poverty and our sin, his death on the cross, his resurrection. All that he wants for us, that we might be your child, your children, and that we might live in your blessing for all eternity. And that they might come to walk closer with Jesus, to be, begin that pathway of being disciples. I encourage them to find someone to talk to after the service, to pray with. Father, for those of us who are already followers of yours, encourage us to become Christian, more Christian in our thinking. That our identity is in Christ, hidden in him. That our glory is his glory in and through us that our our satisfaction in life is being your child blessed by you that we might find our value in being yours and father i pray that each of us might grow deeper and deeper in our appreciation of jesus that we might continue to see him in, in, in greater and deeper ways as the, the door of heaven, and that we might know you more deeply. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.